0: Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings 12, this is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks, joined by Nick Lee. Happy Blue Friday to all of our listeners. Let's talk some Seahawks. Now it's time for our lead story here on Locked On Seahawks. There's been speculation about this for months, specifically a few weeks back. There were reports that surfaced Josh Gordon was considering applying for reinstatement. That has now officially happened. The veteran receiver has been suspended since late November coming off the Seahawks' win in Carolina. That was the last game he played in before he was banned again by the league for substance abuse and violating the league's substance abuse policy. Nick, now that he has applied for reinstatement, with some of the changes under the CBA, the fact that Alden Smith was allowed to enter the league after not playing for five years – Everything is pointing towards Josh Gordon getting another opportunity here. and there's been kind of mixed messages from the fan base. Some fans said it's it, you know it's time to move on. He only gave us seven receptions in five games. He hasn't been dominant since 2013. But then you have the other side of the coin. He's 29. The the teammates and coaches loved him during his brief time in Seattle. Let's bring him back. He's still working out and running routes in the Pacific Northwest. It seems like everything is lining up for him to play again for the Seattle Seahawks.
1: And I would love to see it. I I've been in his corner since the Seahawks signed him the first time. I was pretty darn excited about that. And so my my take on this, first, you know, what are you expecting to to what are you expecting from him when you bring him in to expect the 2013 all pro season is unrealistic and you're living in la la land. But that doesn't mean you just walk away because he's not an all pro anymore. First of all, the Seahawks have literally nothing to lose. They could sign him to a minimum deal, chock full of incentives, nothing guaranteed. And he screws up again. He's gone. No harm, no foul. It's not like you're relying on him to be your number one, number two, or even number three receiver. He's just he just offers you know physical tools he offers physical tools that other number 4 receivers in the NFL just don't have he has a similar height and weight to DK Metcalf he's got speed he's had that experience he's been an all pro he's he's had those dominant seasons you beg for guys like that to be your 3 4 receivers he would just add incredible depth he's never been accused of being a bad locker room guy the dude relapsed because his brother died i mean cut the kid a break ask yourself how you'd handle something like that especially If you have a history of addiction, which he does, cut the kid a break. In fact, I would take – he's not toxic. He's not a clubhouse cancer. He doesn't make waves with his teammates. I would take five Josh Gordons over one Antonio Brown.
0: Yeah, that's the other name that's been floating around out there, that you and I both are in agreement the Seahawks should stay as far away from as possible. COVID rules should certainly apply when it comes to considering signing Antonio Brown. Keep your distance. Let's Social distance
1: from Antonio Brown, that's a new slogan.
0: Yeah, I think the Seahawks should stay far, far away, and it's not because he's not talented. We know Antonio Brown is a great player, but... Josh Gordon is a far safer addition. He's going to be far cheaper, and you don't have to worry about him getting suspended for having multiple run-ins with the law. I understand the argument. He's been in trouble so many times. How can we expect this is going to be different? But you mentioned the fact that it's going to be near league minimum, no guarantees most likely. You can take that risk because if it doesn't work out, it's really easy to move on. And this coaching staff, Pete Carroll and his staff, they have a reputation for being able to bring out the best in people. And who knows? This might have worked out last year if he didn't have the unfortunate circumstances with his brother passing away. He very easily could have been catching. He might have caught a game-winning touchdown against the Green Bay Packers, for all we know. I mean, he, he was the starting, like
1: Malik Turner. That's for sure.
0: He was starting to come on before he got suspended. There, he made that miraculous catch against the Carolina Panthers on his fingertips, a beautifully thrown deep ball by Russell Wilson, but the fact that Josh Gordon was even able to get his hands on it and then haul it in as he's tumbling to the ground, those are the types of plays he can still make. He had a couple really clutch third down receptions that he made in the game against San Francisco in week 10 as well. This is a guy that hadn't played a game for the Seahawks yet, hardly played in the first three or four quarters, comes in and makes a couple huge catches. Russell Wilson went right to him. He showed his faith in his new receiver, and you could see that development, that chemistry starting to develop there over the last few games that he played the Seahawks uniform and unfortunately uh, then got suspended again. But I think he is well worth the risk. If he was somebody that was a locker room cancer, then I would never want to get anywhere near him. But the coaching staff loved having him around. He came in, immediately learned the playbook. He puts in the effort. He's just – unfortunately he's dealing with a disease and when you have circumstances like he did relapses are always possible I think he deserves another opportunity in Seattle he clearly loved being there because he's still practicing here he's still living here so you know I think he's going to explore other opportunities if they're there but if I'm him and if I'm the Seahawks it seems like the perfect situation to just continue where you left off before the suspension bring him in he knows the playbook for Brian Schottenheimer, he's worked with Russell Wilson. And in a year where you haven't had OTAs and mini camps, any guy you can have on your roster that has that experience, that is going to benefit you immensely.
1: And really, this, it's so hard to come in mid-season for, uh, in the middle of the season and just jump right into it. And that's what he was asked to do. So the people are like, oh, he only has seven catches in five games. Yeah, he only played five games. Middle of the season, he had no opportunity really to blossom and develop that relationship. He had to do all that on the fly. And he did that pretty well. Six of his seven catches, which is 86%, were first downs. So clearly Russell Wilson was developing that trust. And had that been allowed to be blossomed over 16 games, he probably turns in a darn good season. I think that 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 relationship was developing. And if they bring him back, yeah, same offense, Russell Wilson back. I think that he has an opportunity to be one of the better three, four receivers, number three, number four receivers in the NFL, just with the depth that he offers. Cause again, the Seahawks are not asking him to be the top target. They're not asking him to carry the offense to the playoffs. They're not doing
0: that. They have nothing to lose by bringing this kid back and giving him another chance. Just don't let him throw another pass. That's the one thing that I would ask. Yes, Brian Schottenheimer, do not call a receiver pass again with Josh Gordon. It was a beautiful spiral, but it was just, you know, right into the defender's hands. So let's just not run that next year. Anyway, coming up next in the second quarter, we're going to continue the show by looking at an upcoming free agent for the Seahawks. Going to be doing this for several Fridays in a row, 2021 free agents. We're going to look at the biggest name on Seattle's upcoming free agent list and whether or not the Seahawks should give them an extension. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. As an avid weightlifter and distance runner, I'm always looking for an edge when it comes to nutrition, seeking quality tasting protein bars without crazy additives. Since being diagnosed with celiac disease, my options have been pretty limited. Enter in the Built Bar, a low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, gluten-free protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Built Bar comes in 16 amazing flavors. My personal favorite is the peanut butter brownie, which is 20 grams of protein and just 3 grams of sugar and 3 grams of net carbs. Since I had my first one, I won't go without it before hitting my squat rack or going for a jog. All Built Bars are 100% chocolate, nut and gluten free. Soft and easy to chew, and don't have the nasty aftertaste associated with most protein bars. Sound too good to be true? Go to BuiltBar.com and check out all their flavor options. You can build your own custom box and new flavors will be coming out May 10th. Try this delicious product for yourself and change your exercise game by using promo code LOCKEDON and get $10 off your first box at BuiltBar.com. Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, joined by Nick Lee here on our Blue Friday show. Later in the third quarter, as we've been doing for the last couple of weeks, we are going to continue our top 100 Seahawks countdown. We're going to be looking at numbers 45 through 41, which is headlined by three premier pass rushers. Really looking forward to talking about that. Nick, over the courts in the next several Fridays, you've been starting to slowly delve into this on the Seahawk Maven website, looking at prospective free agents for the Seahawks in 2021 players that are entering the last year of their current contract and the Seahawks have some pretty big names that are going to be up for free agency next March the biggest one in both you and I's estimation is in the secondary and that's former third round pick Shaquille Griffin and it's funny if we would have had this discussion last year at this time I don't think that it would have been easy to build an argument for giving Shaquille Griffin a long-term deal because he had a pretty rough, disappointing second season, but yet one year later, here we are, and I think the narrative has changed substantially.
1: Yeah, his growth is certainly not linear. It was it was a bit of a, of a curved and bumpy development, but I think that we are still... I'm not sure we've seen the best of Shaquille Griffin yet, and I think that would... That's a bigger a, – one of the biggest reasons why I think it would be a shame to let him walk after this season is because I, I think that he's he's just coming into his own. He's just – he's only 24 years old, and he's got so much more football left in him. I, I, I would hate to let him go, and all of a sudden he reaches higher heights and, and becomes a perennial Pro Bowl corner, and here we are looking for – it starting from square one. I'd hate to do that. And you just you just don't know because even if, say – this past season was his ceiling. That's a decent ceiling. I mean, pro bowl, (laughs) you know, his approximate value was eight, which is a career high and 13 passes defended, which, and he's, I believe in the top 10 or 15 in passes defended since he's been drafted. So it's, it's just a matter of how much better can he get? And if he can get even marginally better, this should almost be a no brainer. I think the biggest drawback we'll talk about is money, but only 24 coming off of Pro Bowl season. He's the first Pro Bowl cornerback for the Seahawks since Richard Sherman. And I know we both have our issues with pro football focus, but a huge jump in ratings. And I don't know how much that matters, but with with some complicated coverage and analytics, a lower completion rate than, than his past few seasons, uh, better or a lower QBR against. I mean, just the numbers stacked up to where he had his best season in year three and the question is how much better can he get and are we willing to are we willing to see that through
0: with some money involved and i think the age factor is something to really consider here because when you look back at the fact that he was Playing it too heavy of a weight in two thousand and eighteen, and that impacted him. He came back last year back down to one hundred and ninety four pounds and you could see the speed on the field. Some of the plays that he made recovering on deep balls there was one against the bengals that didn 't count because there was a penalty on the play, not against Griffin, but swatted the ball away. just the recovery speed you can 't teach and it just feels like there is still so much further that he can go to reach his ceiling when you look at the speed, the size. The instincts that he plays with, he still occasionally has a brain fart where he blows up his assignment and coverage, which is something at this stage of his career you really don't want to see from a player that's supposed to be very familiar now with the defensive scheme. But the age factor, him being a pro bowler last year, and there's going to be some people say, well, he was originally an alder and he got moved up. He was a deserving alternate. There are sometimes alternate Pro Bowlers that didn't have a deserving season. Shaquille Griffin absolutely deserved to be a Pro Bowler. And when I look at the advanced stats that we found on Pro Football Reference, just to kind of put in perspective how much better he was this last season, in 2018, 66% of passes were completed against him. It went down to 57.1% this year. He surrendered more than 200 yards less in coverage more than exactly a yard less per completion. He was giving up nearly two yards less per target, only one less touchdown, which I'll talk in a second why that ended up happening. But the QB rating was in the 80s for most of the season, and then he was battling an injury late in the year, and it shot up to 97.3. But that was still seven points better than what it was in 2018. Yards after the catch went down, almost 100 yards. I mean, almost everything across the board was better, and yet you still feel like he's got room to grow, specifically for me. And I guess this is maybe what I would start off for the cons of not extending him. He hasn't had any severe injuries, but he's had a few minor nicks and bruises. 2018, that playoff game against the Cowboys, he was playing on a sprained ankle, and that impacted him in that game. And then he was dealing with a hamstring injury the last month of the year, last season, and he didn't play very well when he was on the field during those games, got picked on. That's one of the reasons his rating went back into the 90s. Like I said, he was in the 80s most of the year for uh, passer rating against, and so he was doing much better in that regard. I just think that, you know, can we just see what this kid can do if he could somehow stay healthy? Obviously guys get banged up no matter what, but to not have an injury that's going to derail the end of his season, to see this kid go out and be healthy for 16 games, then I think we can really see what kind of football player the Seahawks have in Shaquille Griffin. My biggest issue
1: is where are the interceptions over, over three seasons he's made just three interceptions he didn't have a single interception last year which is interesting that he his the one season he doesn't have an interception he gets the pro bowl not <laughs> i mean that just shows to so the advancement of, of analytics and uh, the opinion of his opposing players but uh, both of and in fact both of griffins interceptions in 2018 came in the same game against the bears so if you really break it down he's had just two games of interceptions out of 45 career games which simply will not do as a starting cornerback in the NFL, especially with the Seahawks who have such high standards for their cornerbacks. So I think that's probably my biggest knock on him right now is, you know, not every corner needs to have, you know, five, six, seven interceptions and, and have one or two pick sixes a year, like all that stuff. Not, not every corner needs to do that to be effective. Cause I think we saw last year, he can be very effective with zero interceptions, but I think if we're both talking about where he can grow, where he can bring that his game to the next level, it's the turnovers. It's the turning those passes defensed, into interceptions, maybe taking one to the house and and increasing the interception number because we've seen those are the things that change games. Turnovers, turnovers, turnovers. And the Seahawks are so turnover-minded that I, I think that that number should be higher. So if there's one big thing that he can improve on to bring his game to a complete
0: whole new level and merit big cornerback money, it's interceptions. I'm going to take this to another level because this, this goes with the interceptions. But we have noticed this from Shaquille Griffin. I don't think it was as bad last year. 2018, there were so many plays where it's like you're screaming at the TV or you're screaming in the press box. I'm screaming inside my head. You can't actually scream in the press box. But why are you not turning around? Play the football. That has been the biggest issue for Shaquille Griffin. I don't think it's that he doesn't have the hands. I think he could be an interception artist. Because a lot of the time, he is in a position where if he would just turn and play the football, he could get easy interceptions. But time and time and time again, we see him with his back to the quarterback and he will turn and play the football, but he does it later than you would expect. And that prevents him from getting his hands on the football or or it delays him. There's been several times where he tried to jump to intercept a pass. And if he would have just turned a little bit earlier to time that jump, he would have probably had an interception. And so that kind of stuff gets frustrating when you see it on film over and over and over again. It's got to be frustrating to the player and to the coaching staff because, like I said, I don't think this is the case. I have seen some corners in this league that just don't have ball skills. And clearly he can get his hands on the football with all the pass deflections that he's got. But if he would just do a better job of being alert to where the football is I I could see this guy exploding for four or five interceptions in a season. He's got the skill set, and he's got the hands to do it. And if he could get on a couple interceptions, get his hands on a couple interceptions, then I could see this guy being somebody with the ability to make plays with the football in his hands, the athlete that we're talking about. So that is certainly frustrating. Sometimes the missed tackles get a little bit frustrating. He's missed 10 apiece in each of the last two years you'll see him come up and make really nice plays, and then you'll see a couple where he just absolutely whiffs. So you'd like to see more consistency from him there as well. So that's really the big thing. Play the football better than what you have in the past. Do a better job of positioning yourself for those interceptions. He's usually in good cover, just being alert where the football's at and making a play on it, and then being more consistent as a tackler. If he can do those two things and stay healthy, not have – uh, little nicks and bruises that end up impacting his play at the end of the season, then I think this kid can absolutely take another big step in 2020. And that's where the whole contract thing comes into play. Do you really want that to happen and not have an extension signed? Because then next year, cha-ching, you're looking at a lot of money being thrown this kid's way. Yeah. That is the the
1: age old risk is do you let this play out and, and do you maybe bring him back on a nice couple year deal? if if he doesn't develop as, or if he doesn't skyrocket, but what if he does skyrocket? Like I said, if you let him go and you're going to let this Pro Bowl cornerback go, you're going to start from square one again. It's not like the Seahawks have these solid corners just waiting in the wings to take over his job. I, I think that uh, it would it would really behoove them to extend him now. And the cornerback position is only getting more more expensive. It's a pass-happy league. It's a spread league. And, you, the the players that are getting paid as much as the receivers and the quarterbacks are the guys that are defending that, the pass rushers and, and this the is defensive the, backs.
0: This is the argument that was being made. I had a couple of other sports writers on social media that were pointing this out, that Byron Jones just signed a deal where he was not far from getting paid twenty million per year by the Miami Dolphins, and he is not a guy that's got a ton of interceptions in his career. We talked about that when we looked at his free agent profile. Like, would the Seahawks have interest? Well, he doesn't have interceptions. He has less of them in his career than what Shaquille Griffin does, and he just got paid by the Miami Dolphins. So Shaquille Griffin was able to hit the free agent market. Yeah, he is going to get paid. Somebody's going to throw the money at him. So. I made a proposal, you know, maybe look at him as an eleven, twelve million dollar per year corner. The reality is he's probably gonna be pushing for at least fourteen. James Bradbury got fifteen million per year from the New York Giants in free agency. And I think Shaquille Griffin is a better player than James Bradbury. So the Seahawks are gonna have to pay. I guess my caveat to that would be John Schneider has not been averse to paying quality secondary players. He paid Richard Sherman, he paid Earl Thomas and he paid camp chancellor. Those guys got big bucks and they absolutely need to retain him if possible. So I, I could see this being a player that the team is willing to spend whatever it takes to bring him back into fold on a long-term deal. And I think he wants to be in Seattle. And yeah, this isn't quite like giving, you know, Richard Sherman,
1: a third contract. I mean, this is a second contract. He's in his mid twenties, still, it, maybe not even in his prime. I I think that if he has, if you let him play this coming season without an extension, and he gets better, yeah, you're talking 15, 14 million at minimum. I think. I think that there's there's an opportunity where if he takes that next step, he's going to be asking for top cornerback dollar. And I I don't want to take that risk. I think the Seahawks need to jump on this. Maybe like not today, but before the, you know, the, the weather gets colder and the leaves start changing during the season, I think that they really, really need to take a hard look at the situation and offer him an extension.
0: And this is typically where the Seahawks make an offer at the beginning of training camp. We saw it with Dwayne Brown not this last extension, but two extensions ago for Bobby Wagner, where they like to take care of business before football actually gets going. And so I think if there is going to be an extension reached, it's going to happen sometime before training camp starts. And we don't really know when training camp is going to start given the COVID circumstances, but I definitely think this is a different situation than Jaron Reed. The the similarity is, you know, both guys have had one breakout season, but I think you saw enough from Shaquille Griffin, his rookie season as well and on the practice field and the priority position that he's playing out there at corner where they absolutely need him out there. I think that's going to, expedite the process of trying to get him extended this is a guy they want to be a part of their future in Seattle when we come back for the third quarter we're going to continue our top 100 Seahawks countdown with numbers 45 through 41 a couple of defensive ends a pass rushing linebacker really looking forward to talking about this group of outstanding Seahawks don't go away you're listening to Locked On Seahawks podcast part of the Locked On Podcast Network your team every day Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back, 12s. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, joined by Nick Lee. We are now into the top 50 on our Seahawks 100 countdown. We did numbers 50 through 46 yesterday. Now looking at numbers 45 through 41. This is interesting. We did Frank Clark to end the show yesterday at 46. 46. We're going to move on to 45 with Cliff Averill and then 44, Chris Clemens. And it's incredible how close all three of these defensive ends were in all of the rankings. Three outstanding players that lasted about the same amount of time in Seattle, Nick, and put up very similar numbers at that. Averill is certainly a guy that was undervalued by many during his time with the Seahawks.
1: Yeah, I think part of that was that he was next to a pretty – In a pretty vocal defense, you had Richard Sherman, you had Michael Bennett, who are two pretty loud personalities, um, with several others. I think if you ranked the Legion of Boom defense as a whole by loudness, Cliff Averill's probably in double digits. He's probably towards the bottom, but I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. He was a fine player and was part of a vital part of those great Seahawks defenses and he didn't start every game in the 2013 Super Bowl run, but he still had eight sacks. Eight sacks in more limited snaps than he got the rest of his Seahawks career. And I could keep going back to last year. That'd be double what the leader had for the Seahawks last year. Um, and he was just a, a pretty darn productive player. And he's one of those unsung heroes. And file, file him under unsung hero of the, one of the greatest, no, not one of the, the greatest Seahawks team in franchise history. He just—he was always there, and especially in that Super Bowl, with with that the other Super Bowl, <laughs> Super Bowl Forty Nine, um, he was probably making a decent case for Super Bowl MVP. Had the Seahawks won that game, had they won that game, he'd be probably on the short list. He had fourteen fumbles with the Seahawks, and and arguably was the best player on the field in that Super Bowl Forty Nine, and and he just w- was consistently there, never made waves. Never had a big mouth and wanting huge money, but he was there in his last season, his last full season in Seattle before injury, said in 2016, 11 and a half sacks and got to the Pro Bowl.
0: Yeah, that was a fantastic season, and it was really nice to see him finally get to the Pro Bowl because he had some other Pro Bowl-caliber seasons. But again, you talked about the star power on this defense they had in the secondary with Sherman, Thomas, Chancellor, Byron Maxwell when he got his opportunities played really well. You had Bobby Wagner, K.J. Wright at linebacker, Michael Bennett along the defensive line. We'll talk about Chris Clemens in a second. I mean, they were just loaded on that defense, and players like Cliff Averill – though productive. I mean, he had 34 and a half sacks in his time with the Seahawks. You know, they often got forgotten, especially in the early years of those really dominant defenses. When they started to phase some guys out, then he became a bigger part of that defense. And, you know, that last season, that last full year, he finally got the acknowledgement he deserved with those gaudy numbers. But I believe he had 27 quarterback hits the year before that in 2015. So even if the sack numbers weren't there, He was consistently getting the quarterback. He forced a ton of fumbles, as you mentioned. He was really one of those strip sack artists, one of the best in the business. And looking back at that Super Bowl as well, yeah, you're right about the MVP thing. When he got hurt, when he left with a concussion, that game completely changed. If Cliff Averill would have been able to finish out the game, I am convinced to this day the Seahawks win that game because when he left, suddenly Tom Brady got comfortable in the pocket and he started to chew up that Seahawks defense he wasn't doing that before that because Cliff Averill was constantly in his face. And so for that reason, 45 seems just about right. His stats, maybe not the most gaudy for a defensive end in franchise history, but a very meaningful player on some elite, historically dominant defenses. Now at number 44, another defensive end that put up very similar numbers in his time in Seattle, Chris Clemens. This truly was the first – excellent addition that Pete Carroll made to the roster he traded Daryl Tapp who had underachieved in Seattle for several years to the Eagles in exchange for Clemens and all Clemens does is come in his first season playing that Leo role which was perfectly suited for him goes out and has a career-high 11 sacks the Seahawks win the NFC West he plays well in the playoff games as well and he just continued to rack up sacks over the next couple of years, had at least 11 in each of his first three seasons with the Seahawks. Yeah, 33 and a half sacks in three seasons. That's pretty darn incredible. And another Consistency. guy Consistency.
1: Just so consistent. And another guy who is an, one of the unsung heroes of that Super Bowl season as well, four and a half sacks in, in 14 games in 2013 as well. And, yeah, before he arrives in Seattle, so yeah, this is another testament to how Pete Carroll does get the best out of players. Before he arrived in Seattle, his best, his career high in sacks was 8, 20 tackles, and he had 12 quarterback hits. Yeah, that first season, 11 sacks, 49 tackles, 21 quarterback hits. Clearly, he felt very comfortable in Seattle and with his coaching staff and give them credit. And he finished his Seattle career with 38 sacks, 164 tackles, and 76 quarterback hits, but never got the sexy accolades, didn't get to a Pro Bowl. You know, what didn't bring in their hardware like some of the other defensive ends in Seahawks history and and certainly some of the guys on that 2012-2013 defense that eventually won them them a Super Bowl. But just another guy who's consistent, did his job, just the lunch pail guy. Just You think of the lunch pail guys, the guys that just go to work, punch their time cards, do the work, do it well, then leave and and don't have much to say about it and let their plane do the talking.
0: Yeah, that's what he did. He went out and he just played with his hair on fire, shooting off the edge, and that Leo spot was perfect for him. And I love it that his Seahawks career ended the way that it did because he only had four and a half sacks his last season. He was coming off a torn ACL in the playoffs against the Redskins. And he struggled during the early part of that year, and he didn't start a lot of games. But he started to play more snaps as the year progressed, and then he played really well in the playoffs. He sacked Peyton Manning. In the Super Bowl, so for him to go out that way, winning a Super Bowl and having a big sack in that game, uh, that was really an outstanding enactment of revenge, so to speak, because that that season just didn't go how he hoped it would, coming off that injury, and for him to come out and rebound and play the way that he did in the postseason as a veteran leader for a team with a lot of young players, it, it was it was invaluable for this football team. Now at number forty three. One of the best receivers in Seahawks history, a guy that honestly I believe could have been much higher in this list if he could have just caught a higher percentage of the passes thrown his way. We'll get to that in a moment. But Daryl Jackson played with the Seahawks from 2000 to 2006. This is a guy that caught 47 touchdowns in his career. That's the third most in Seahawks history, over 6,400 receiving yards. He still ranks fourth all-time in receiving yards in the Seahawks record books an extremely productive player with 3000 yard receiving seasons and yet as i said it did feel like in his time in seattle there were some yards left on the field
1: yes Cat's percentage was in the mid 50s for most of his career with this, with seattle <clears throat> excuse me and that's and not all his fault obviously no no he played with some <laughs> subpar quarterbacks as well and and also you know their their offensive philosophy was a little bit different back then as well but Yeah, as far as the yards, he kind of reminds me of what DK Metcalf did last year, where, yeah, he had 900 receiving yards, pretty darn impressive season. But with his drops, he left so many yards in the field and probably could have been easily one of the top 10 receivers in the NFL if he had not dropped a few passes. So I think with Daryl Jackson, it's the same thing. I mean, his second season in the the league as a 23-year-old, 1,081 yards, eight eight touchdowns, he's still very productive. And he was pretty darn productive all the way to the end, in 06, he still got nine nine hundred and fifty six yards and ten touchdowns. So from start to finish, he was pretty productive. You know, consistent and productive might be different terms, but he he put the numbers in there and, and he did struggle with drops and had a lower than lower catch rating than than people would like. And I think he had nine fumbles as well. So just a lot of turnovers, a lot of drops, but with, that almost speaks more to just how darn productive and talented he was because of the numbers he still put up.
0: Yeah, overcoming those things that you just mentioned, you still have almost 6,500 receiving yards in seven seasons with the team. That just tells you how productive that he was. And once Matt Hasselbeck really started to come into his prime, then those two really started to hit it off and connect. Early in Hasselbeck's career, some of that catch percentage was on him. But there were also plenty of drops out there. But the thing that really helped catapult Jackson to the top 50 on my list was his playoff performances because he had 41 catches for 503 yards and caught had a catch rate of 64 percent he was far better in that category in the postseason in his career and he had three playoff touchdowns and that's not counting the one that was taken from him in Super Bowl 40 I'm not going to talk anymore about that because that still angers me Uh. to this day that that was called a penalty Uh, but that's the big reason he's in my top 50 is this dude came to play in the postseason to go with those really good regular season numbers as well Coming into number 42, we're now swinging to the offensive line. One of the more polarizing players on our rankings, highest ranking was 26, lowest ranking was 60, and that's really the way that you would measure the pulse of Russell Okung with the Seahawks fan base. A lot of fans look back at his time in Seattle and say, you know what? He was a lot better tackle than we gave credit for. And then, of course, there's the other side of the coin. You have the fans say he couldn't stay healthy, and so – we'll never know how good he, he could have been for us. And I think both those arguments are valid. But when you look at his career, even with all the games that he missed, he missed 11 games his first two years in the league. When he finally got healthy, he was a pro bowler in 2012. When he was on the field, he was one of the best tackles in the NFC. There's no question about it. It was just about availability, but he was available in the playoffs, and that's what really matters in the scheme of things. He started 14 playoff games. He started 12 games protecting for Russell Wilson, protecting his blind side, two Super Bowls, and for that reason, and considering how difficult it was for them to replace him when he left, I think you can make a strong argument that he's the second best left tackle in franchise history. Took the words right out of my mouth. I I think that the testament
1: to just how valuable Russell Okung was was after he left. It's one of those things where you don't realize what you have until you lose it. And Russell Okung was that guy because how long did it take Seattle to replace Russell Okung a left tackle? It took him until Dwayne Brown. And it, it took. It was just several seasons of just playing musical offensive linemen, and it just was not fun. It was yeah, not Gary, fun. He's, you
0: had Gary Gilliam, Reese Odiambo. Oh Trying to think, Bradley Sowell. Sowell was yeah, the, yeah I mean, they just were rotating. George Fant had his year starting there. And they just had a really hard time finding a capable replacement. And maybe Fant could have been that guy if he didn't get hurt. Uh, we'll, we'll never know how that will, how that would have gone because the next year, uh, during that season he was out, is when they traded for Dwayne Brown.
1: Yeah, I absolutely believe – I have a pretty strong opinion that he is the second best tackle in Seahawks history until – Dwayne Brown sticks around a little bit longer because Dwayne Brown, I think, is is making a hard charge for that. But that's that's a topic for another day. But yeah, 12 playoff games for Seattle, uh, two straight Super Bowls. He paved the way for that Super Bowl victory. He's got a ring in Seattle. I think that carries a lot of weight. When I was doing these rankings, Corbin, I carried a lot of weight with that Super Bowl team because that is the goal in the NFL. Is you win Super Bowls. And so what? even if it was a role player or – Maybe they weren't a perennial Pro Bowler. If they helped the Seahawks win a Super Bowl, they get a lot of brownie points for me, and I think Russell Okung fits that with – he was a fine player too, but helping the Seahawks get a Lombardi trophy I think pushes him over the edge into the top 45.
0: Now, finishing off this cluster of five players at number 41, one of my favorite linebackers when I go back and watch old Seahawks film – Fred Young, 1984 to 1987, one of those players that didn't play in Seattle very long, but you mentioned how playing on that 2013 Super Bowl team carried a lot of weight in your rankings. All pros and Pro Bowls carried a lot of weight in my rankings, and Fred Young was a Pro Bowler all four seasons that he was in Seattle. He was also a first-team All-Pro selection in 1987, which was his last season with the team, and This guy was the ideal middle linebacker in a 3-4 defense because he was really athletic and he was an outstanding blitzer. He didn't play much as a rookie. He was a special teams pro bowler his first year in the league after being a third-round pick out of New Mexico State. But then he became a starter in 85 and he made the Pro Bowl. Starter in 86, made the Pro Bowl again. We don't have tackle numbers because they didn't have them officially then, but this guy racked up a bunch of tackles, and he racked up a bunch of sacks. And it's very interesting because as good as he was at 85 and 86, they went out and drafted Dave Wyman in the second round in 1987 and then they use a first round supplemental pick on brian bosworth so understandably <laughs> is brian bosworth on this list corbin <laughs> no oh, okay um, just checking uh, understandably uh, fred young was upset about that and he was motivated by the team's lack of faith in him so he just went out and said you know what i'm gonna post a career high in sacks had nine sacks in 1987 was the first team all pro selection as i mentioned and unfortunately at that point He was upset with those additions they'd made. They couldn't agree on a contract. He wanted paid the money that Bosworth got paid, which is understandable. He's like, I've actually done something in the NFL. And the Seahawks refused to do that. And so they traded him to the Colts, and he played three more years, not near as high of a level for the Colts. And he was dealing with an arthritic hip, and it forced his retirement. But this guy had pass-rushing numbers that jumped off the uh, stat sheet he had really good numbers forcing fumbles. He was just he was a dynamic playmaker the four years in Seattle. The fact he was a Pro Bowler all four years at one of the premium positions on defense in an era where they ran the ball more. I think that speaks volumes why he deserved to be this high in our rankings.
1: Yeah, batting a thousand in years with the Seahawks and Pro Bowls is pretty darn good. And there's only 21 first team All Pro players in Seahawks history, and Fred Young is one of them. So that carries a ton of weight for me too going back to those guys who they don't have the tackle numbers and it's kind of hard if you unless you're watching tape of just to, it's hard to get a good gauge on how dominant now this they guy were. had
0: tons of tackles
1: i mean if you to i'm oh, sure yeah yeah i'm sure the numbers now would would look maybe not bobby wagner-esque but pretty darn close in the triple digits but with with me i, I the number the approximate value stat and pro football reference is growing on me a little bit i know it's very flawed but he had three straight seasons of at least 10 approximate value, 10, 10, and 14. There are two linebackers in Seahawks history who cannot say that, K.J. Wright and Chad Brown. So he had three straight seasons that were more impressive than K.J. Wright or Chad Brown have actually with approximate value produced as a Seahawk. So that, I think, is speaks a testament to just how quality of a player he was. And, yeah, the four straight Pro Bowls had he been able to continue with the Seahawks On that trajectory, we're talking probably a top 25 player in Seahawks history.
0: Yeah, I think if he played a couple more seasons, we are not going to get to him for a few more podcast episodes. But unfortunately, went to Indianapolis, had that arthritic hip that started giving him issues, wasn't near as productive, and he was out of the league by 1990. But for that short burst, one of the best linebackers the Seahawks have ever had. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Nick at Nick Lee 51. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever your preferred podcast platform is. Just go to our website, lockedonseahawks.com. When we come back on Monday after a much deserved weekend, Rob Rang and I will look at a pair of potential breakout candidates for the Seahawks in 2020, plus the latest on the training camp front and numbers 40 through 36 on our Top 100 Seahawks Countdown. Enjoy your weekend. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Go Hawks. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.